Welcome to Effortless Swimming, the podcast for swimmers, triathletes, and coaches. Join Australian swim coach Brenton Ford as he reveals the latest techniques and information to improve your swimming. Let's dive right in. Welcome to another episode of the Effortless Swimming Podcast. I'm here with my favorite nutritionist. I've got Steph Lowe on the line again. So Steph uh, is a friend of mine here from Melbourne. She's a triathlete. She's about to head off to Hawaii for uh, Half Ironman over there. Uh, But today I want to talk to Steph about two big misconceptions about food. And the reason I'm going to talk about these two things is because I've made some changes to my diet recently and the results from that have been good. So I want to talk to Steph about why, um, why these misconceptions are out there and what it can mean to your health and to your weight if you make these changes in your diet. So welcome again to the podcast, Steph. Hi, thanks for having me. So the two misconceptions that, that I want to talk about, are, well, the first one is fats in the diet. So uh, lately I've, I've been having a lot more fat in my diet, but my weight hasn't been... Uh, hasn't been increasing. In fact, it's been going the other way. So um, let's talk a little bit about the misconception about a lot of fats that that people generally eat. Yeah, great. I think that's actually the most common misconception that we have. Um, So I guess it's important to start by discussing that we actually need to consider that it's not food that controls our weight, but it's our hormones. So what we're looking at from a food perspective is eating the right food to get the desired hormonal control or impact. So fats in particular are really complex molecules. Um, They have a high, what we call, thermic effect of food, but that just means that our body has to go through a lot of work to digest and assimilate and absorb, which is actually a good thing because um, it gives us that satiety. And I know that you mentioned you feel full when you eat those good fats. So you do get that satiety, which is obviously really important, but... From that hormonal point of view, we get blood sugar control, so we don't get the high spikes in insulin, which is what um, sugar or refined grains give us. So we get a nice, stable energy supply, and that's what a meal should do. It should offer us that energy delivery into the morning or into the afternoon, or if it's a main meal, certainly that that energy energy value. Yeah, and one of the things that I've noticed, so... Basically, what I've been doing for breakfast is I've been having bacon and eggs with butter and with uh, another thing called MCT oil. And what I've noticed is that I'm not re- I'm not really getting hungry until about one or two o'clock in the afternoon. But even then, it's not you know I'm not as hungry as I was when I was eating say cereal for breakfast. So uh, another thing is the energy delivery. So how how are fats different to say? Um, carbohydrates in terms of energy delivery and, you know, is there one which is better or... Yeah, so I guess there's a couple of points here we can discuss. So if we look at our traditional breakfast options, cereal and toast, they're really high in carbohydrates, which at the end of the day are just sugars, so the carbs get broken down into the sugars. What those sorts of foods do is give us short-term energy, a big insulin spike, and then we come down off what we call like a roller coaster, and that's when you get the crash but also the hunger. So you've probably experienced it before that you eat your cereal and toast and then by 9 or 10 o'clock you're craving like a muffin or some caffeine to pick you up from that sugar crash. So the opposite happens when you eat fat 
and protein, which obviously you're getting from your, your eggs and bacon as well as the good fats. So both protein and fat give you that delayed energy delivery because they are more complex molecules to break down and our body doesn't require insulin like it does when we eat carbohydrates. And then I know you are on your website, thenaturalnutritionist.com.au, you, you quite often talk about the difference between butter and margarine. Mm. So one of them is good for you, uh, one of them is not so good for you. So um, what is, what's your take on, on those two? So, I mean, definitely butter is the best choice, and we know now why. Margarine was definitely invented back in the low-fat era where everyone became really fatophobic and low-fat products became the next best thing. Um, I think the perspective I can give you is if you look at the number of ingredients in butter, there's going to be two, maybe three, versus the number of ingredients in margarine, there's definitely 15 or more. And I'm not sure if you've ever seen the colour of margarine before it's dyed to be sellable. It's actually like a really foul grey looking colour because it's been highly processed. And I think you need to ask yourself whether you want to put that in inside your body. Yeah, and, and one thing that that annoys me is, uh, but it's good, you know, it's good marketing by the margarine companies is they talk a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of the big claims are lowers your cholesterol and they make it sound like it's it's really healthy to eat margarine. So, uh, yeah, are those are those are those claims true, uh, or is it you know, is it funded by the the margarine companies? Those studies, you know, what's so those so your question. Those claims aren't true. Um, I think the most important point is that we can't be victims to food marketing. So it's really important to learn how to read labels and look at the ingredients list and and certainly um, learn to avoid those um, unsubstantiated claims. So margarine, they can get away with saying that because um, of the omega-6 content. So people assume all omegas are good but we know that it's actually just omega-3 that we want from a heart health and a cholesterol point of view. And margarine is actually high in omega-6, which is actually inflammatory. So it's something we need to be avoiding for overall health, but from an athlete point of view, particularly from a recovery point of view, we want to be as anti-inflammatory or as alkaline as possible. And then you've also got the, well, I remember growing up in school and they, they would basically teach that saturated fats are bad, but polyunsaturated fats and I think monounsaturated fats, all these types of fats are, are good for you. But um, based on what I've been reading lately is that, that that's not quite true either. Yeah, well, this comes back to what I think um, happened. It started about uh, over 50 years ago now with a certain few research studies that were very much manipulated in terms of what the data set um, produced. And I think back then we didn't have any other evidence to go on. So those research studies bled into the food industry and then products were created and, and we were just pretty much told what to believe. So it's a very different story now. We have a lot more research and like longitudinal studies that are obviously, um, you know, when it's done over a long period of time, you can get some um, decent evidence. So we now know that we're not linking saturated fats to things like heart disease and cholesterol. And it's actually something called the saturated fat heart disease uh, myth because it's obviously been disproven. Yeah, and that's, that's you know, it's quite interesting that um, a lot of the stuff that we've been taught you know, in the last maybe two decades or so with, um, you know, you should eat low fat and 
um, all these changes. But, you know, even with milk, like you've got skim milk and 99% fat-free mm. milk. And, um, but, you know, are you better off just having the, the full cream, like the, your, you know, your normal milk as opposed to the skim milk? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we're looking at the blood sugar control. So if you have a little bit more fat in your dairy in general, then that's going to give you that energy, that satiety, that blood sugar control, which is the key to weight management. Um, the perspective I can give you is, you know, you don't want to change things from their natural state. So at least full fat dairy is close to how it comes out of the cow, whereas skim milk has gone through a large range of processing um, to get it to be cholesterol-free. And that's another one similar to margarine. It's actually a really foul colour before it died to be marketable. Yeah, yeah, right. And, and what about for the coffee drinkers out there? Um, you know, is soy is, is sort of marketed as the healthier option to, to milk, but, um, you know, based on what I've been reading, soy milk's not, uh, not the greatest thing to be having either. Yeah, I think we need to think about... Um, Milk in general, I mean, soy milk is usually really high in sugar to start, so we know that we want to avoid inflammatory foods, and sugar is certainly one of the big culprits. To be honest, I don't think we need dairy at all, whether it's full fat um, or not, purely because we want to think about um, food giving us nutrition that we need. And unfortunately, the dairy that most of us have access to is pasteurised, and obviously that has to happen at some level um, to be in the actual supermarket. But what it means is that most of the nutrition is actually destroyed. So the question I always ask people is, why would you want to drink something that's not providing you with any nutrition? Yeah, that's right. Well, what do you, um, what do you recommend for, for coffee drinkers and how do you um, recommend they have their coffee? Well, I actually use unsweetened almond milk for my coffees. Um, most of my clients end up doing the same thing with a little bit of a twist of the arm. But you can always go for a, a, a long black or if you want to reduce your dairy intake to start, obviously like a macchiato or something with a lot less dairy is the best place to, to begin. Yeah, cool. Because that's something I've been wondering is I drink probably more coffee than I should and, you know, how do you, how do you reduce that, that milk intake while still having your coffee? Yeah, well, I mean, it comes back to blood sugar control as well. Whether it's full fat or skim, Milk will always have like the 4.7 grams per 100 of lactose, which is the milk sugar. And so if you're having a 200 ml cup of coffee, you're nearly getting 10 grams of sugar. And so then if you're timesing that by two or three a day, you're having more than your day's intake in your liquid. Right. And that sugar is giving you that insulin response, which is the opposite of what we're trying to achieve, remember? Yeah, that's it. So, uh, And that kind of ties into the, the second misconception that I want to talk about, and that's with, with wheat. Uh, or with gluten. So um, I read, or I'm in the middle of reading a good book called Wheat Valley, which uh, I think I might have seen you recommend on your, your Facebook page, uh, but it's just really interesting as to the changes that wheat's gone through over the last sort of, I think it's 50, 60 years, mm. and how it's so different to to what it used to be in terms of it's been genetically modified and changed to, um, you know, be able to, cope with different weather conditions and things like that. So, uh, And you've been gluten-free for how long now? I'm coming up to eight years, actually. Eight years, and you haven't looked back in eight years? <laughs> oh, it's been a good journey. I mean, to be honest, I think it comes back to um, where we get our nutrition from. And like you mentioned, the wheat these days is really um, processed. It's hybridised to create big yields. 
So it's, you know, all about the dollar at the end of the day. Um, and refined grains are also really high in phytic acid or phytates. And what that means is that um, well, these compounds in particular really inhibit nutrient absorption. So the reason why you would go wheat-free and or gluten-free is to remove a high phytate content and to allow your body to absorb nutrients better. Yeah, well, it's I've been... Well, actually, I was on holidays the last two weeks and I completely went the other way. But before that, I was was not having any wheat or gluten um, for a couple mm. of weeks there. And uh, and it, it felt really good. I, I felt like I was able to think clearer. I felt like my body wasn't... Um, uh, like my, my hunger wasn't as much as it used to be. So mm. I, I didn't really get the cravings that, that I used to from it. So, that, so I'm, I'm back on that sort of... Um, diet so to speak that um yeah and just avoiding wheat and avoiding gluten as, as much as possible because i think it's um it's such a good way to go and um after looking at all the recipes on your website and things like that you know that i follow them almost religiously with your, your recipes on there that mm-hmm. um you know there's a lot of good food out there that you can have that doesn't you know you don't need to have gluten or wheat in your diet you certainly don't. I think an important point is that if you're filling up on those sorts of foods, it's highly likely that you're not getting adequate nutrition from protein and vegetables. If you think about a meal that might be high in wheat or gluten, you know, the standard would be, say, pasta or pizza. Um, you, you're never going to get a full serve of protein or cups of veggies in those sorts of meals unless you're really creative. Um, so if you reduce your reliance on those um, carby grains, it allows you to fill your plate with good protein, which is really important for lean muscle mass development, but also exercise recovery. And it also allows you, you to meet your daily veggie requirements. And vegetables are really where we get all of our antioxidants and nutrients, vitamins and minerals. So, you know, we can't um, allow the really complex carbs to get in the way of that intake. Mm. And... Um and in your so you've got a, a high performance weight loss program for athletes, and a lot of this stuff that we're talking about now sort of ties into that. Can you explain to me how you know how that program works, and you know how do the athletes that go through your program how do they get those results with you know, with the stuff that you do? Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, I guess I, I help people um, first understand why we're making these changes, um, and it really depends on where the athlete is starting from. So my high-performance weight loss program is very tailored. So we start with an initial consultation and generally focus on day-to-day nutrition, so make those changes um, over the course of a few weeks so they're obviously sustainable. Um, And then we also tie in some exercise nutrition as well. So, I mean, obviously the priority is what you do most of the time, so that's the day-to-day stuff. And then we look at how we can get the most out of your training, and nutrition is a big element of that. Mm. Um, so we work together with follow-up consultations that might go fortnightly or monthly, moving out to, say, a six-month catch-up to make sure that everything's in check and that obviously our plan is now integrated as part of their lifestyle. And that's the big thing too because, I mean, with, you know, if, with the people who like to switch from diet to diet, it's... Um, it's not a sustainable way of, of losing weight, is it? Absolutely. I think that's you've hit the nail on the head there. Like I don't really like to use the diet word at all yeah. because it means a short-term approach. So you want to find the changes. And, you know, they might be um, 
obviously completely new to you, so there'll be an adjustment phase, but that's also completely normal. And, you know, there's certainly a way to, to make gradual changes each week that then accumulate. And then in, say, eight weeks' time or 12 weeks' time, it's definitely part of what you do. But you've learned that like you would learn any new skill, like, like you would learn how to do butterfly. You learn how to integrate these new nutritional guidelines into your life. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's like, you know, so if you want to change a freestyle technique, you start with, uh, start with one part of it. It might be your body position, for example, and you focus on that. You get that right for a couple of weeks, you make the change, and then you move on to the next thing. So it's sort of integrated into your, into your stroke just like you would, you know, you'd implement these small changes one at a time uh, into your, you know, your lifestyle and your habits and things like that. Absolutely, and that's the way it becomes sustainable. I almost feel like then it becomes integrated in your DNA. It's what you do without thinking twice. One of the, the, my favourite changes that I've made lately um, is on a Sunday night I'll cook up a big meal that I'll have for either you know, lunch or dinner for the next couple of days after that and it's just stopped me from snacking, it's stopped me from looking in the cupboard in the fridge multiple times a day for something to eat. So it's just got that food there so it not only saves time but it just means you've got something that you can go straight to when you're hungry. Yeah, I think food prep is a big part of it, particularly if you're trying to fit in full-time work and training you know, healthy food doesn't appear on the table by itself. So a little bit of prep goes a long way. So whether it's snacks to have in your training bag so you can eat as soon as you finish to help accelerate recovery or if it's, yeah, a big meal that you cook a double or a triple batch of so you've got something to take to lunch or for lunch the next day or even chuck it in the freezer for later on in the week when you're home late from training. It really sets your week up for success. My my favourite one recipe from your website is the the spinach bread that you've got on there, uh, and I know you're, you're making a banana bread one too soon, but that's, uh, <laughs> I found that uh, the, so what I do on a, on a weekend is make up the spinach bread, cut it up into a couple slices, and it you might go to eight or ten slices, uh, and wrap up each one individually, put it in the freezer, and then you can take that along to training to have afterwards. And, you know, that stopped me from, you know, stopping off at the supermarket on the way home from training and buying... Um, you know, two years ago, it used to be a pack of donuts and a block of chocolate. So it's, uh, I think it's not exactly the perfect recovery fuel, is it? No, not at all. But you know, mm. when you're hungry and you haven't eaten for a while and you've had a big training session, that that was my go-to recovery <laughs> snack. Uh, and but you know, I was sort of six kilos heavier then. Uh, yeah, and absolutely. Was, mm. And that's why. And that's why, yeah, so um, snacks in the training bag are a really good one so that you do make the right choice. But remember, we want to be eating some uh, proper fuel in that 30-minute window post-exercise. So if you've got to drive home or go to the grocery store or start cooking, I guarantee you're going to miss that window. So even something like a banana in your training bag is a great place to start. But you can certainly cook one of my muffins or bread recipes, which are all gluten-free and refined sugar-free, and that's a great snack to have ready to go. Yeah, sounds good. And now with with protein, you recommend the, uh, the the pea protein. So why is that, and what's the difference between the that and say whey protein? Um, personally, I've just moved away from dairy, um, just because we know that dairy is an inflammatory. Nutrient. So if we're looking at being as alkaline or as anti-inflammatory as possible, it's not something that we need to rely on. So there are some good quality whey protein isolates out there, which obviously 
to have the dairy element removed. Um, but personally, I just chose the pea protein because it's obviously really natural, um, which is what I do with everything I put <laughs> in my mouth. And um, the pea protein, I find, um, like obviously it's like cost effective and it tastes good, but it's also highly bioavailable. So you're getting that protein straight in after training. Yeah, cool. I haven't tried it yet, but once this this uh, next this batch of protein runs out, I'm going to um, give it a shot. So, where can uh, if people want to find out more about more recipes, uh, or they they're interested in your high performance weight loss program, whereabouts can they go and find that information? Yeah, easiest place is online. So it's thenaturalnutritionist.com.au. Um, recipes are up on the on the blog on the homepage, but there's also quite a lot on Facebook. So jump over to Facebook and like the Natural Nutritionist. Awesome. Thanks for that. And you're off to Hawaii on Friday. I, I am. So I fly out Friday and I race the half Ironman next week on Saturday the 1st of June. Sounds good. Well, good luck. Thank you. And we uh, hope you go well. And thanks so much for jumping on the podcast again. It's always a pleasure to have you. And uh, as you know, I follow your recipes religiously uh, online. So I've, um, I've shared a lot of the the things that you post on the, the Effortless Swimming Facebook page because it's it's really good stuff and it's it's really good for athletes, I think. So uh, thanks again, and I'll hopefully see you back on the podcast sometime soon. Great. Thanks for having me, Brenton. Bye. Thanks for joining us on the Effortless Swimming Podcast. To get transcriptions, bonus videos, and to be the first to hear about new episodes, go to swimmingpodcast.com.